Hi, everybody. Carla here, and welcome back for another episode of Carla Reads the Classics. Thanks so much for joining me. Let's continue with E. Lockhart's We Were Liars. Granny Tipper died of heart failure eight months before summer 15 on Beechwood. She was a stunning woman, even when she was old. White hair, pink cheeks, tall and angular. She's the one who made Mummy love dogs so much. She always had at least two and sometimes four golden retrievers when her girls were little all the way until she died. She was quick to judge and played favorites, but she was also warm. If you got up early on Beechwood, back when we were small, you could go to Claremont and wake Gran. She'd have muffin batter sitting in the fridge and would pour it into tins and let you eat as many warm muffins as you wanted before the rest of the island woke up. She'd take us berry picking and help us make pie or something she called a slump that we'd eat that night. One of her charity projects was a benefit party each year for the Farm Institute on Martha's Vineyard. We all used to go. It was outdoors in beautiful white tents. The littles would run around wearing party clothes and no shoes. Johnny, Marin, Gat, and I snuck glasses of wine and felt giddy and silly. Gran danced with Johnny and then my dad, then with Granddad holding the edge of her skirt with one hand. I used to have a photograph of Gran from one of those benefit parties. She wore an evening gown and held a piglet. Summer 15 on Beechwood, Granny Tipper was gone. Claremont felt empty. The house is a a three-story gray Victorian. There is a turret up top and a wraparound porch. Inside, it is full of original New Yorker cartoons, family photos, embroidered pillows, small statues, ivory paperweights, taxidermied fish on plaques. Everywhere, everywhere are beautiful objects collected by Tipper and Granddad. On the lawn is an enormous picnic table, big enough to seat 16, and a ways off from that, a tire swing hangs from a massive maple. Gran used to bustle in the kitchen and plan outings. She made quilts in her craft room, and the hum of the sewing machine could be heard throughout the downstairs. She bossed the groundskeepers in her gardening gloves and blue jeans. Now... The house was quiet. No cookbooks left open on the counter. No classical music on the kitchen sound system. But it was still Grant's favorite soap in all the soap dishes. There were her plants growing in the garden, her wooden spoons, her cloth napkins. One day, when no one else was around, I went into the craft room at the back of the ground floor. I touched Grant's collection of fabrics, the shiny buttons, the colored threads... My head and shoulders melted first, followed by my hips and knees. Before long, I was a puddle soaking into the pretty cotton prints. I drenched the quilt she never finished, rusted the metal parts of her sewing machine. I was pure liquid loss. Then, for an hour or two, my grandmother, my grandmother, gone forever, though I could smell her Chanel perfume on the fabrics. Mummy found me. She made me act normal. Because I was. Because I could. She told me to breathe and sit up. And I did what she asked. Again. Mummy was worried about Granddad. He was shaky on his feet with Gran gone, holding on to chairs and tables to keep his balance. He was the head of the family. She didn't want him destabilized. She wanted him to know his children and grandchildren were still all around him, strong and merry as ever. 
It was important, she said. It was kind. It was the best. Don't cause distress, she said. Don't remind people of a loss. Do you understand, Katie? Silence is a protective coating over pain. I understood, and I managed to erase Granny Tipper from conversation the same way I had erased my father. Not happily, but thoroughly. At meals with the aunts, on the boat with Granddad, even alone with Mummy, I behaved as if those two critical people had never existed. The rest of the Sinclairs did the same. When we were all together, people kept their smiles wide. We had done the same when Bess left Uncle Brody, the same when Uncle William left Carrie, the same when Grand's dog Peppermill died of cancer. Gat never got it, though. He'd mentioned my father quite a lot, actually. Dad had found Gat both a decent chess opponent and a willing audience for his boring stories about military history, so they'd spent some time together. Remember when your father caught that big crab in a bucket? Gat would say, or to Mummy. Last year, Sam told me there's a fly fishing kit in the boathouse. Do you know where it is? Dinner conversation stopped sharply when he'd mentioned Gran. Once, Gat said, I miss the way she'd stand at the foot of the table and serve out dessert, don't you? It was so tipper. Johnny had to start talking loudly about Wimbledon until the dismay faded from our faces. Every time Gat said these things, so casual and truthful, so oblivious, my veins opened, my wrists split, I bled down my palms, I went lightheaded, I'd stagger from the table or collapse in quiet, shameful agony, hoping no one in the family would notice, especially not Mummy. Gat almost always saw, though, when blood dripped on my bare feet and poured over the book I was reading. He was kind. He wrapped my wrist in soft white gauze and asked me questions about what had happened. He asked about Dad and about Gran, as if talking about something could make it better, as if wounds needed attention. He was a stranger in our family, even after all those years. When I wasn't bleeding and when Marin and Johnny were snorkeling or wrangling the littles, or when everyone lay on couches watching movies on the Claremont flat screen, Gat and I hid away. We sat on the tire swing at midnight, our arms and legs wrapped around each other, lips warm against cool night skin. In the mornings, we'd sneak laughing down to the Claremont basement, which was lined with wine bottles and encyclopedias. There, we kissed and marveled at one another's existence, feeling secret and lucky. Some days, he wrote me notes and left them with small presents under my pillow. Someone once wrote that a novel should deliver a series of small astonishments. I get the same thing spending an hour with you. Also, here is a green toothbrush tied in a ribbon. It expresses my feelings inadequately. Better than chocolate, being with you last night. Silly me, I thought that nothing was better than chocolate. In a profound symbolic gesture, I am giving you this bar of Vogus I got when we all went to Edgartown. You can eat it or just sit next to it and feel superior. I didn't write back, but I drew Gat silly crayon drawings of the two of us, stick figures waving from in front of the Colosseum, the Eiffel Tower, on top of a mountain, on the back of a dragon. He stuck them up over his bed. He touched me whenever he could, beneath the table at dinner, in the kitchen, the moment it was empty, covertly, hilariously, behind Granddad's back while he drove the motorboat.
I felt no barrier between us. As long as no one was looking, I ran my fingers along Gat's cheekbones down his back. I reached for his hand, pressed my thumb against his wrist, and felt the blood going through his veins. One night, late July of summer 15, I went swimming at the tiny beach alone. Where were Gat, Johnny, and Marin? I really don't know. We had been playing a lot of Scrabble at Redgate. They were probably there, or they could have been at Claremont listening to the aunts argue and eating beach plum jam on water crackers. In any case, I went into the water wearing a camisole, bra, and underwear. Apparently, I walked down to the beach wearing nothing more. Never found any of my clothes on the sand, no towel either. Why? Again, I don't really know. I must have swum out far. There are big rocks in off the shore, craggy and black. They always look villainous in the dark of the evening. I must have had my face in the water and then hit my head on one of the rocks. Like I said, I don't know. I remember only this. I plunged down into the ocean, down to rocky, rocky bottom, and I could see the base of Beechwood Island, and my arms and legs felt numb, but my fingers were cold. Slices of seaweed went past as I fell. Mummy found me on the sand, curled into a ball and, and half underwater. I shivered uncontrollably. Adults wrapped me in blankets. They tried to get me warm at Cuddle Down. They fed me tea and gave me clothes, but when I didn't talk or stop shivering, they brought me to a hospital in Martha's Vineyard, where I stayed for several days as the doctors ran tests. Hypothermia, respiratory problems, and most likely some kind of head injury, though the brain scans turned up nothing. Mummy stayed by my side, got a hotel room. I remember the sad gray faces of Aunt Carrie, Aunt Bess, and Granddad. I remember my lungs felt full of something long after the doctors judged them clear. I remember I felt like I'd never get warm again, even when they told me my body temperature was normal. My hands hurt. My feet hurt. Mummy took me home to Vermont to recuperate. I lay in bed in the dark and felt desperately sorry for myself because I was sick and even more because Gat never called. He didn't write either. Weren't we in love? Weren't we? I wrote to Johnny two or three stupid lovesick emails asking him to asking him to find out about Gat. Johnny had the good sense to ignore them. We were, Sin we were Sinclairs after all and Sinclairs do not behave like I was behaving. I stopped writing and deleted all the emails from my sent mail folder. They were weak and stupid. The bottom line is, Gat bailed when I got hurt. The bottom line is, it was only a summer fling. The bottom line is, he might have loved Raquel. We lived too far apart anyway. Our families were too close anyway. I never got an explanation. I just know he left me. Welcome to my skull. A truck is rolling over the bones of my neck and head. The vertebrae break. The brains pop and ooze. A thousand flashlights shine in my eyes. The world tilts. I throw up. I black out. This happens all the time. It's nothing but an ordinary day. The pain started six weeks after my accident. Nobody was certain whether the two were related, but there was no denying the vomiting and weight loss and general horror. Mummy took me for MRIs and CT scans, needles, machines, more needles, more machines. They tested me for brain tumors, meningitis, you name it. To relieve the pain, they prescribed this drug and that drug and another drug because the first one didn't work and the second one didn't work either. 
They gave me prescription after prescription without even knowing what was wrong, just trying to quell the pain. Cadence, said the doctors. Don't take too much. Cadence, said the doctors. Watch for signs of addiction. And still, Cadence, be sure to take your meds. There were so many appointments, I can't even remember them. Eventually, the doctors came through with a diagnosis. Cadence Sinclair Eastman, post-traumatic headaches, also known as PTHA, migraine headaches caused by traumatic brain injury. I'll be fine, they tell me. I won't die. It'll just hurt a lot. After a year in Colorado, Dad wanted to see me again. In fact, he insisted on taking me to Italy, France, Germany, Spain, and Scotland. A 10-week trip beginning in mid-June, which meant I wouldn't go, I wouldn't go to Beechwood at all, summer 16. The trip is grand timing, said Mummy brightly as she packed my suitcase. Why? I lay on the floor of my bedroom and let her do all the work. My head hurt. Granddad's redoing Claremont. She rolled socks into walls. I told you that a million times already. I didn't remember. How come? Some idea of his, he's spending the summer in Windermere. With you waiting on him? Mummy nodded. He can't stay with Bess or Carrie, and you know he takes looking after. Anyway, you'll get a wonderful education in Europe. I'd rather go to Beechwood. No, you wouldn't, she said, firm. In Europe... I vomited into small buckets and brushed my teeth repeatedly with chalky British toothpaste. I lay prone on bathroom floors of several mu- museums, feeling the cold tile underneath my cheek as my brain liquefied and seeped out my ear, bubbling. Migraines left my blood spreading across unfamiliar hotel sheets, dripping on the floors, oozing into carpets, soaking through leftover croissants and Italian lace cookies. I could hear Dad calling me, but I never answered until my medicine took effect. I missed the liars that summer. We never kept in touch over the school year. Not much, anyway. Though we tried when we were younger. We'd text or tag each other in summer photos, especially in September, but we'd inevitably fade out after a month or so. Somehow, Beechwood's magic never carried over into our everyday lives. We didn't want to hear about school friends and clubs and sports teams. Instead, we knew our affection would revive when we saw one another on the dock the following June, salt spray in the air, pale sun glinting off the water. But the year after my accident, I missed days and even weeks of school. I failed my classes and the principal informed me I would have to repeat junior year. I stopped soccer and tennis. I couldn't babysit. I couldn't drive. The friends I'd had weakened into acquaintances. I texted Marin a few times, called and left her messages that later I was ashamed of. They were so lonely and needy. I called Johnny too, but his voicemail was full. I decided not to call again. I didn't want to keep saying things that made me feel weak. When Dad took me to Europe, I knew the liars were on island. Granddad hasn't wired Beechwood, and cell phones don't get reception there, so I began writing emails. Different from my pitiful voice messages, these were charming, darling notes from a person without headaches, mostly. Mirren, waving at you from Barcelona, where my father ate snails and broth. Our hotel has gold everything, even salt shakers. It is gloriously vile. Write and tell me how the littles are misbehaving and where you are applying to college and whether you have found true love. Cadence. 
Johnny, bonjour from Paris where my father ate a frog. I saw the winged victory, phenomenal body, no arms. Miss you guys. How is Gat? Cadence. Marin, hello from a castle in Scotland where my father ate a haggis. That is, my father ate the heart, liver, and lungs of a sheep mixed with oatmeal and boiled in a sheep's stomach. So, you know, he is the sort of person who eats hearts. Cadence. Johnny, I am in Berlin where my father ate a blood sausage. Snorkel for me. Eat blueberry pie, play tennis, build a bonfire. Then report back. I am desperately bored and will devise creative punishments if you do not comply. Cadence. I wasn't entirely surprised when they didn't answer. Besides the fact that to get online, you have to go to the vineyard. Beechwood is it's is very much its own world. Once you are there, the rest of the universe seems nothing but an unpleasant dream. Europe might not even exist. Welcome once again to the beautiful Sinclair family. We believe in outdoor exercise. We believe that time heals. We believe, although we will not say so explicitly, in prescription drugs and the cocktail hour. We do not discuss our problems in restaurants. We do not believe in displays of distress. Our upper lips are stiff, and it is possible people are curious about us because we do not show them our hearts. It is possible that we enjoy the way people are curious about us. Here in Burlington, it's just me, Mummy, and the dogs now. We haven't the weight of Granddad in Boston or the impact of the whole family on Beechwood, but I know how people see us nonetheless. Mummy and I are two of a kind in the big house with the porch at the top of the hill, the willowy mother and the sickly daughter. We are high of cheekbone, broad of shoulder. We smile and show our teeth when we run errands in town. The sickly daughter doesn't talk much. People who know her at school tend to keep away. They didn't know her well before she got sick anyway. She was quiet even then. Now she misses school half the time. When she's there, her pale skin and watery eyes make her look glamorously tragic, like a literary heroine wasting from consumption. Sometimes she falls down at school crying. She frightens the other students. Even the kindest ones are tired of walking her to the nurse's office. Still, she has an aura of mystery that stops her from being teased or singled out for physical, for typical high school unpleasantness. Her mother is a Sinclair. Of course, I feel no sense of my own mystery eating a can of chicken soup late at night or lying in the fluorescent light of the school nurse's office. It is hardly glamorous the way Mummy and I quarrel now that Dad is gone. I wake to find her standing in my bedroom doorway, staring. Don't hover. I love you. I'm taking care of you, she says, her hand on her heart. Well, stop it. If I could shut my door on her, I would, but I cannot stand up. Often I find notes lying around that appear to be records of what foods I've eaten on a particular day. Toast and jam, but only half. Apple and popcorn. Salad with raisins. Chocolate bar. Pasta. Hydration? Protein? Too much ginger ale. It is not glamorous that I can't drive a car. It is not mysterious to be home on a Saturday night reading a novel in a pile of smelly golden retrievers. However, I am not immune to the feeling of being viewed as a mystery, as a Sinclair, as part of a privileged clan of special people, as part of a magical, important narrative, just because I am part of this clan. My mother is not immune to it either. This is who we have been brought up to be, Sinclairs, Sinclairs. 
And that'll do it for segments 11 through 15 of E. Lockhart's We Were Liars. Thank you so much for listening. Spotify listeners, please uh, reply or leave a comment uh, to the question in the episode description. And uh, users of Anchor or whatever other platform you're on, please feel free to leave a voicemail or to write to me at Classics at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Until next time.